Welcome to all who have joined us uh, this evening. I'm glad that you are interested in studying the Bible. And uh, uh, if we have any who join us uh, in listening to the recording later, just um, who are curious about understanding more about the Bible, uh, that is great. We're, we welcome you as well. The format that we are going to follow is that I will lead in a study for 30 to 40 minutes, and after that lesson, I will open it up for questions. And so the remaining time that we have, within an hour, it will take questions. Rather than interrupting uh, the uh, lesson, trying to work through a certain amount of, of um, verses each evening that we meet and then allowing you to be able to ask questions that you might have. That's why it's important I suggest you have your Bibles, of course, uh, that you have a pen, that you have a tablet, that you can write questions on and then we can take up those questions afterwards. Uh, my prayer is that God would grant you faith to receive his truth and uh, hungering and thirsting to grow uh, in Christ, uh, to grow in your understanding of him and all that he has revealed uh, in his word. Uh, to that end, uh, let's just begin by standing and asking God's blessing upon this uh, introduction uh, to the study of the Bible before next, Lord's, or next uh, Tuesday we begin in the Gospel of John. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to thee thanking thee that uh, we are um, able to come and to gather in this way, that, uh, that we do not fear uh, gathering as thy people to study thy word, that, uh, Lord, uh, thou would attend uh, this time of study and that thou would open our minds and our hearts, that thou which... Uh, we read that which we learn uh, would be food uh, to us, to nourish us, and uh, to guide and direct our paths. Uh, Lord, we pray that Jesus would be exalted above all. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my plan for this evening is uh, to give a brief introduction and overview of the Bible. Uh, and uh, I'm going to use a format of asking questions and then answering those questions. So, very naturally, uh, the first question is, what is the Bible? Well, let me give you just a brief uh, definition the Bible is God's inspired, infallible, written revelation of truth to mankind. God's inspired, infallible, written revelation of truth to mankind. Let's break that definition down a little bit. God's, the Bible is God's inspired, inspired word or revelation. Inspired literally means God breathed. That is, just as we breathe when we are speaking, 
So this is God's breath and his word going forth. That's what inspired refers to, his very own word. Not the words of men, but the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Here we find that the Apostle Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is all inspired. So whatever is scripture, and scripture is found in those canonical books from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that's scripture, that's his written word. It is all inspired, God breathed from beginning to end. And not simply ideas and concepts, but the words that God used in those original languages are the actual truths, are the actual words that God inspired. They're not a word too many, not a word too less, all the words. Some people have a concept of inspiration that only involves, well, God gave them the ideas and the concepts, but the words were simply the words of men, uh, which allows errors you know, in the words that are used, if, as long as they get the concept generally correct, but that's not our understanding. Uh, all scripture means all writings. The word scripture uh, is from the Greek word graphe, which means writings, writings. So it's the words, the writings that God inspired. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we read, and this again is the Apostle Paul, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And uh, the truth, again, the, the word of God is the truth. Second Peter one twenty one. Second Peter one twenty one again tells us how the Lord moved prophets along to write what he desired them to write, every word that he desired them to write. For the prophecy came not in old times by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So they spake, but they also wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So that's the idea of inspired, briefly. Then in the definition, the Bible is God's inspired, infallible, written revelation of truth to mankind. Infallible. Infallible means that it is incapable of error. If we use the term inerrant, 
that means that there is no error, but if we use the term infallible, it means that that is in, incapable of there being error in the scriptures. Because all of scripture is inspired by God, which we've already established, and because the God revealed in the Bible is omniscient, that is, he knows all things. There's nothing that God does not know. And because the God of the Bible is absolutely true and faithful and cannot make any mistakes, cannot make any errors, cannot say anything that is contrary to the truth, uh, cannot say anything that is false. The Bible, therefore, like God himself, is incapable of error. Just as God is incapable of error, so that which he inspires is incapable of error. Namely, the word of truth, the, the Holy Scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, We read, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. There is no way of finding out the end of his understanding. Likewise, in Psalm 147, verse 5, his understanding is infinite, is what that verse says. No boundaries, no limitations at all to God's understanding and his knowledge. Therefore, to say that God could make a mistake, that God could inspire that which is error, is to say that God is not God, because God knows all things. God uh, is absolutely faithful and true. So it is, again, to allow one error is to allow that God made a mistake, made an error, which is to deny the God that's revealed to us in Scripture. Likewise, not only was it inspired at the time that he gave the Scripture to, and gave the word of truth to prophets and apostles who wrote it down, recorded it, not only at that time, but God didn't simply give his revelation and, and then take a vacation so that what we have now is not his word. He has preserved his word in the transmission of those texts, both in the Hebrew text, certain portions, a few portions of Aramaic in the Old Testament, and in the Greek text of the New Testament, the Lord has preserved his word uh, throughout all of that transition so that nothing, not one jot or tittle has been lost, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. We read, this is Jesus speaking, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle 
shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The jot and the tittle are just uh, not even a letter, uh, but just little uh, marks uh, on a letter uh, of the Hebrew alphabet. Not even one jot or tittle will, will pass. And so the very word of God, uh, we have the promise that he will preserve it. He will preserve it faithful uh, throughout generations and generations until, uh, until this earth is no more, until he renews this earth, till at, his second com- at uh, Christ's second coming. Well, let's move from what is the Bible, let's move uh, to another question. Is the Bible authoritative? What is the authority of the Bible? Well, I think we can say that the word of anyone is only as authoritative as the one declaring it. So that if you have someone who is not trustworthy and makes various declarations, we may judge uh, that he's not very credible. Or if we judge that uh, here is someone uh, who holds a high office, and he makes a declaration, uh, well, the, the, the height of that office, the level of that office will dictate uh, the authority uh, that is behind what he says. Does he have the authority to back it up? Well, here we see that, the, as we've already noted, the Bible is the word of God. God, the creator of all, from the smallest to the greatest, uh, from the most distant to the most near, from that which is inanimate and has no life, but is yet a thing, like a rock, to that which does have life, to especially human beings. He is the creator of all things. And because he is the creator of all things, He reigns as supreme over all things. The creator is the Lord of all. Uh, He is the one, therefore, as creator, who who is in charge, uh, who establishes boundaries by way of his laws and his commandments, uh, who has given unto us knowledge of his will, with regard to salvation, shown his mercy and his grace in Christ Jesus. Uh, This is our creator. And he reigns supreme ruler and king over all his creation. Therefore, his word is not only authoritative, as if it's equal to other authorities in, in the world, His word is supremely authoritative. There is no authority greater than God's authority because he is the creator of all. It's the supreme standard. The word of God, therefore, is, holy scriptures are the supreme standard for what we believe. We're not making up as we go along what we are to believe. 
God has revealed in his word, which has been given unto us, what we are to believe about God, what we're to believe about the truth that he has revealed unto us in his word. And so we have what we are to believe, what we are to think, what we are to speak, what we are and how we are to act. All of that by way of truth, by way of ethical standards, by way of the will of God uh, manifested in Christ and coming into this world to save lost sinners. All of that is supremely revealed in his word and is uh, absolutely authoritative. God alone is Lord of the conscience. No pope, no priest, no bishop, no minister, no elder, no king, no prince, no president, no congress is Lord of the conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience and, and he has revealed his lordship in his holy word. He has given to us that which we are to believe and how we are to act. What his will is for our life. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, we see here the authority of our God and his word. Isaiah 8, 20. To the law, that's God's law, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, that is the scripture, it is because there is no light in them. No light in them. If they do not speak according to God's word. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, God says through Moses, What things soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. So God's word is sufficient. We, we have no reason and we would be acting as if we were God to add to his word or to take away from his word, to diminish from his word. That's, uh, again, assuming to ourselves a prerogative that only God has as the creator of all things, as our creator. Only God has that right. And it's not only in the Old Testament and in Deuteronomy, but uh, even as... The scripture closes in the last chapter of Revelation. We are reminded that if anyone dare add, in verse 18, Revelation 22, 18 and 19, if anyone dare add unto what is written, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book to deliberately add to or to take away from God's word 
is not a light man matter. It is of the most serious consequence. It is to remove oneself from the possibility of salvation to intentionally to intentionally disrupt, to intentionally add to or take away from God's word. All right, next question. What does the Bible primarily reveal? So we've established what the Bible is. It's God's uh, inspired, infallible word of truth. His revelation to mankind, we've established that the Bible is, is supremely and absolutely authoritative. All laws of men, all authority that men may have must bow the knee to God's authority and to his authority in his word. We cannot, therefore, in, in good conscience, say that any laws of men are the supreme law of, 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 of the land, of our country. No, it's, it's God's law that must be the supreme law. And any laws that a man or kings or rulers or congresses do uh, legislate and execute must be agreeable to the law of God or they have no authority. What does the Bible primarily reveal? The primary theme of the Bible, and this I think is extremely important to understand, what is the central primary theme of the Bible? The primary theme of the Bible is to reveal God's glory in graciously saving sinners through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of Scripture speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. John 5.39, Lord Jesus speaking, says, Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. They are, and they are they which testify of me. Search the scriptures, because why? They testify of me. He didn't say, search the New Testament scriptures, because when Jesus was writing, there wasn't the New Testament yet recorded. There was only the Old Testament. Search the scriptures, therefore, all in the Old Testament. They testify of me. Therefore, the purpose of creation... The purpose in the fall of man into sin, the purpose of the worldwide flood at the time of Noah, the purpose of the Ten Commandments, the purpose of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, all that we find in the Old Testament was to reveal the justice of God on the one hand, the justice of God that sin must be punished if he is a just God. If he is a just judge, he cannot wink at sin. And again, his word defines what is sin, what is not sin. His word is authoritative. His commandments are that which show to us 
wherein we sin against him. And so all of the Old Testament reveals the justice of God and how God views sin. And it, re it reveals that man, through man's own rebellion against God, has become one under the judgment and the condemnation of a just judge. And again, as I said, he cannot simply wink at sin. He cannot excuse sin on man's part. If a judge were to wink at, at uh, someone who has uh, uh, stolen, uh, someone who has raped, uh, someone who has injured, intentionally injured somebody else, um, and just let them off the hook, and just to say, you know, you're, you're on your way, uh, just go ahead and go. I'm sure that the the um, family members, and particularly if the offender had taken the life of, of, of someone, the fa family members would not uh, consider that to be mercy. They would consider that to be injustice, and so it is. That would be an unjust judge to allow those who transgress the law to simply escape without having to pay the consequences for, for that. Uh, and to the, degree, to the degree that a judicial system does allow all manner of uh, law-breaking, and where it does not execute justice, to that degree it is not just. The law, again, uh, is given by God. It's authoritative. It's to restrain sin. It's to expose sin uh, in, uh, in uh, our lives. And it's to ultimately drive the sinner to see, by way of his or her own law-breaking, that he and she needs a savior. So, all that's in the Old Testament reveals the justice of God, but all that is in the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, also reveals the grace, the grace of God, that God will only save sinners through his appointed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all that we see by way of of uh, God saving Noah, uh, even before that, after Adam and Eve fell, clothing them in, in the skins of animals, showing that, that they cannot stand before him in their own righteousness, that they must have a substitute, and the animals that were slain, the blood that was shed, was all intended to point to the Lamb of God, who would come, uh, the ceremonies, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all pointed in like manner uh, to the sacrificial death, the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who would uh, uh, pay the penalty, pay the penalty uh, for the sin, for the guilt and the condemnation of sin, which uh, uh, 
sinners chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world owed to God. They owed him justice because of their sin. We owed God justice because of our sin against him. God deserved, and God, uh, uh, in being just, if he had sent us to hell, would have been absolutely just in doing so. There would not have been any injustice in God in sending us to hell because we deserve that condemnation. But the scripture tells us that the mercy and grace of God is such that it was his purpose. Having purposed the fall of man into sin, it was his purpose to show his mercy and grace and his love for undeserving sinners and rescuing and saving them and sending Christ to die on their behalf. And those alone who will trust in him, those who believe, the believers dying for their sins. And so, all of the, therefore, all of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ. Okay? All of the Old Testament points forward to the promises in the Old Testament looking forward to Jesus Christ's coming. Whereas all of the New Testament confirms that God has kept his promises and has sent Jesus to be the Savior of all who were chosen from all eternity in Christ Jesus and who will trust him alone as the only payment for their sin and as their only righteousness, not looking to themselves, not trying to find worthiness within themselves at all, but looking away from themselves and seeing that there is no hope for any of us apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him. And that's why Jesus, as he hung upon the cross, cried out before, before he died. It is finished. That term in Greek indicated that a debt was fully paid. Fully paid. Jesus cried out, it is paid in full. The debt for God's people whom he came to rescue and save and who would trust and believe in him, that debt, nothing more can be exacted from those who trust in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we would have to conclude that Jesus didn't suffer enough, that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't sufficient. But because we know from God's word again, which is alone authoritative, it was sufficient, there is no more suffering. Jesus Christ does not need to shed any more blood. It is fully shed for his people. And that is why we have salvation. It is through Jesus alone. Only the Lamb of God could pay for the sins of his people. Jesus is not, dear ones, one way to be saved among many ways. That's very popular to think today in our 
in our particular culture that there are many ways because all religions are placed uh, on the same platform, side by side. Uh, and that's not the, the view of the uh, Holy Scriptures. That's not what we find in the Bible at, taught at all. God does not say that, uh, that uh, all religions are equal to the religion of Jesus Christ. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. John 14, 6. It is Jesus, still talking about what does the Bible primarily reveal. It is Jesus who is God in the flesh. And as we next week began to look at the Gospel of John, and I would encourage you to begin reading in the Gospel of John. Become familiar with the Gospel of John through your reading, your Bible reading. We'll see again how the Gospel of John from the very outset establishes that truth. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the Word. He is the not written Word. He is the Word personalized. He's the individual and personal Word of God. It is Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who not only rescues the believing sinner from the guilt of sin, but also from the condemnation of sin in hell. And also, in addition to that, rescues the believing sinner from the power of sin. That ongoing struggle with sin, even after the Christian is converted and comes to Jesus Christ, that sin uh, is not eradicated entirely from the Christian's life, but there is a power that comes from Jesus Christ that does not allow sin to be our master any longer, does not allow sin to control us any longer. And when we fall into sin, and we do daily, in thought, word, or deed, that the Christian, the one who is truly trusting in Jesus Christ, doesn't want to hold on to that sin, doesn't want to cling to that sin, but wants to see the power of Christ's death and the power of Christ's resurrection operating daily in his or her life. So that more and more, we call it sanctification, growth in Jesus Christ, more and more until the, the time that the Lord takes us home to be with him, that there is growth. And Jesus said it this way in a parable that some bring forth 30, some 60, some 100 fold, but all Christians bear fruit to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the image of God and according to whom we are being transformed. We are being transformed to look more and more like Jesus Christ. That's, that's what sanctification is. 
And uh, Jesus, as well, is coming again at the end of this world to raise the dead, to judge all men, to usher all believers into his uh, eternal kingdom, not only their souls, but with the resurrected bodies, and to punish forever unbelievers in hell. That's what the scripture reveals. The next question, how many parts are there in the Bible? Well, if you open the Bible, you'll find that there is the Old Testament and there is the New Testament. I've alluded to already in the Old Testament, but let me again say the Old Testament gives God's revelation about the coming of Christ to be the sacrifice for his people. It's God's revelation before the coming of Christ. The Old Testament is God's revelation before Christ came. It points to Christ. It promises Christ to come. The New Testament, on the other hand, is God's revelation at and after Christ's coming. It is a confirmation that God has kept his promises. He sent Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come. He has, he has through his teaching, through his miracles he performed, uh, through his death, and resurrection which were prophesied to occur in the Old Testament. Even the nature of his death hanging upon a cross, being pierced in the side, being raised from the dead, not to undergo the corruption of death, but to be raised gloriously from the dead. All of that was prophesied. Jesus fulfilled all of that in his coming. So you see, dear ones, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not foes. They're not enemies. We ought not, therefore, to, to treat them as contrary to one another. Those who were saved in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to Jesus Christ and his coming. They were trusting in, in the Messiah who was to come. They didn't believe, those who were saved, those who were true believers, didn't believe that sh simply shedding the blood of an animal uh, could take away their sins. They believed that that typified, that signified, that symbolized the blood that would be shed by the Messiah, by the one whom God would send to pay for the sins of his people, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those who were in the Old Testament had to exercise faith just like those in the New Testament, in order to be believed. They had needed to exercise faith and believe in the promise of Christ who was to come. 
So the Old Testament and New Testament are not two different books. Uh, they are one book with two different chapters. History leading up to the coming of Christ, history being fulfilled and realized at the coming of Christ and subsequent to the coming of Christ in the early apostolic age. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books, 39 books in our, in our uh, English canon of scripture. Uh, among those 39 books, there, there is the law, there is history, there's wisdom, and there's prophecy. Those four categories of God's Old Testament revelation. In the New Testament, there are 27 books. And uh, the division of those, likewise, four divisions, there are the Gospels, four Gospels. There is history, book of Acts. There are letters wherein doctrine and life how we are to practice our faith are taught in the epistles or letters from the apostles. And then the New Testament concludes the book, book of prophecy, book of revelation, with regard to events that were future to John, and some events that are yet future to us but events that were future to John and were being fulfilled throughout, throughout history. Another question, and this will we'll end uh, our time this evening, our introduction with this last question. How should we study the Bible? And so just some practical principles as to how we should study the Bible. I think uh, since we've already stated that the Bible is the word of God, inspired by God, then prayer should be our resort first of all, to seek the mind of God. It's not simply a book that we approach with a degree. Uh, it's not simply a book that we approach like other pieces of literature, human literature. This is different than any other literature in all of the world. This is the Word of God. And therefore we need His Holy Spirit to guide and direct our thoughts, our understanding, to give us clarity of mind as we read His Word so that we might properly understand it. So we begin with prayer. Second, I think it's important that we understand as we study God's word that there aren't multiple meanings of, of uh, the same passage within scripture. Uh, God doesn't contradict himself and give one meaning of, of, of scripture and then give a second meaning that uh, uh, is... Uh, contrary to, to, that, to that meaning that he intended. There's one meaning, even as God is one, 
there is one meaning to his word. God cannot, dear ones, and again, I think this is something that we need to address when we hear it, certainly in our own hearts and minds, but I think uh, among uh, the voices of other Christians, God cannot be the author of meanings that contradict one another without accusing God of contradicting himself. We cannot uh, uh, have the idea, the attitude, that it's okay uh, to, uh, to disagree on the meaning, the interpretation of God's word. Uh, God did not give us his authoritative supreme standard for doctrine and for life in order for us to uh, come up with various meanings. Now, God's not the source of those contradictions to the truth. Man is. God did not give his word and say, believe whatever you want to believe about this particular passage of scripture. It doesn't matter. No, it does matter. Because God gave it and because he is one, his meaning in what he has revealed must be understood as one. There aren't multiple meanings to his holy word. Along with that, we need to understand uh, error is not indifferent. Error is not neutral. We don't agree to disagree about the truth of God's word. Every error is a sin. Whether we are holding it or someone else is holding it, every error is a sin and is contrary to his will. And that which is contrary to his will, his revealed will in scripture, is not good, is not right. It's sin, it's transgression of his law. Next, it is possible to understand God's will in scripture. We don't want to have the idea that God's word uh, is so mysterious, uh, that God's word is so uh, beyond our understanding with his aid and his help that, that uh, why even try to understand it? Why even try to read it? Uh, no, God gave his word unto us uh, that we might be taught uh, again, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. The scriptures are profitable, but how could they be profitable if, if it's impossible to understand his word? They can only be profitable to us because we do understand his word. There are certain parts of it that we're going to understand more easily. Granted, even... Uh, even the Apostle Peter said as much in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 16. Let me read what he says there. 
and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Notice what he says, what Peter says here in verse 16. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Some things that Paul has written are hard to understand. Well, anyone who's familiar with the Bible can certainly attest that to be the case. There are certain things that are much easier to understand. There are certain things that are more difficult to understand. Do we just give up and say, uh, I'm just going to only read those portions of Scripture that, that are easy to understand or skip over verses and, and just read the verses that are easy to understand and not dwell upon and not think upon, not meditate upon, not go to other portions of God's Word in order to understand the difficult part or the more difficult portions of God's Word. No, uh, that's not the way that we grow. We grow by reading, we grow by studying, we grow by, uh, as well, in understanding, as we said, praying for God to in enlighten our minds, but we also grow through standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, those who were godly and learned men who have gone before us, that we can read what they have left to us, their testimony concerning what God's word teaches. We don't believe it because they said it, we believe it because it's the truth and what God says is the reason we, we believe it. But they can be of a help, they can be of an aid, just like a minister standing in front of you as he preaches God's word, can be a help and an aid to our understanding. So can faithful, godly, learned men from the past be helps and aids, can be unseen pastors to us, teachers to us in instructing us as to what the scripture teaches. Next, one passage of scripture must be compared with other passages of scripture. Where there is something that is more difficult to understand, where there's something in, in God's word that's more obscure, uh, we, we go to parts of God's word where similar things are said that are more clear and we compare that which is clear with that which is more obscure to us. We don't compare the obscure with the uh, uh, obscure. We, we find our, our uh, stability, our foundation upon that and build upon that which is clear. And again, that which is obscure cannot contradict that which is clear. There has to be harmony. There has to be unity and agreement. If we believe that God is the one who has inspired his word, then there must be agreement in all the parts. Next, and this is the next, the last one. <clears throat> the Bible uses many symbols 
and figures of speech in it. It also uses historical narrative. Uh, when we are reading historical narrative, uh, that's not the time to, to uh, symbolize and to take a, a narrative and make it figurative speech, but to take it as history and to read it as history. But there are portions of God's word, uh, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, um, that is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the wisdom, that's the wisdom literature, where many figures of speech are used, as well as in portions of prophecy. Take the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is full of symbols within it. Uh, many and most of those symbols from the Old Testament. Therefore, the key to understanding the book of Revelation is to be so familiar with the meaning of those symbols that we find in the Old Testament. Consider uh, that Jesus says about himself that he's the Lamb of God, that he's a door, that he's a shepherd, that he's the foundation. These are all figures of speech. We don't believe that Jesus is literally uh, a door uh, to, to a room or that he's uh, literally a, a foundation uh, for a house uh, or that he's literally a lamb. The, the, those are uh, figures of speech and we interpret them accordingly. And likewise with other figures of speech and uh, metaphors and and. Uh, we also uh, would note, for example, in the book of Revelation, as I said, it has many symbols, <clears throat> speaks of a beast there. Uh, this beast has uh, seven heads and ten horns. Do we interpret uh, that to be something uh, that is literal, that there's going to be this actual literal beast uh, that looks like that, or does that beast signify something else? Do those heads signify something else? Do those horns signify something else? Well, I submit to you that they are symbolic. They signify uh, very real things. Though the beast, as, as it's stated there, doesn't, uh, is, is not actually one that looks like that in history, but all of those things about the beast are that which we are to see in history, fulfilled and realized. The harlot spoken of in Revelation chapter 17 that's filled with the blood of the saints. Again, uh, we're not talking about a literal, one single literal harlot. We're talking, again, this is symbolic. A symbolic of a, of a harlot church. Uh, a church that is unfaithful to Jesus Christ that has departed from Christ, uh, that has gone after other lovers. So all these symbols can be understood, but they are understood not by the mere mind of man, but by the mind of God, enlightening our minds and taking us to various places in Scripture to be able to understand those symbols. 
And finally, and I alluded to this already, all scripture is profitable to teach what we are to believe and to teach how we are to live. Again, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that is mature, complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. How do you know you have truly learned and believed what God declares in Scripture? Well, the evidence that you truly believe is that you love it. You love God's Word, and you desire to obey it. Not to, uh, not to cast it aside as unimportant, not to visit it once in a year, not to even visit it, visit it when you come to worship on the Lord's Day, but you dwell in God's Word. That's how you know, again, you truly believe it. You want to live in God's Word. You want it to fill your mind. You want it to transform your mind. You want it to change your heart, which it does. As we pray and ask God to do so, His Word fills us. His Word cleanses us. His Word changes us. How do you know that you truly love God? You know that you truly love God when you trust Him and obey Him. When you trust His Word and obey His Word. That's the evidence that you truly love God. And people may say, I love God. I love Jesus Christ. But the evidence that one truly does is that they trust His Word. They take it, they cherish it, and they keep it. They obey it. And when they fall, which we all do, and when we fall, we don't remain in that fallen condition. We repent. We arise again. We seek God's forgiveness. We renew our faith and our covenant to, to be obedient to Him and to walk in faithfulness before Him. Dear ones, the scripture is absolutely necessary for the spiritual life of the Christian. It's not optional, it's absolutely necessary. Job says in Job 23, verse 12, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I have esteemed the words of God's mouth, his words, and we can say, the words that he has given to us in his holy word here, more than my necessary food, for this is our most important nourishment. This is our most important food, is his word. It's our wisdom. In it, God promises to be with us, to help us, to save us, to use us. It is without doubt for every, I think, true believer, it is without doubt the greatest possession that we can possibly hold in our hand, his holy word. Dear ones, as we continue this study in weeks, months to come, let's learn of our God. Let's learn of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's learn of the truth that will set us free and of the way 
God will have us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Let me, a little longer uh, than than uh, I had said, but uh, I wanted not to continue the introduction into next week. So um, let me ask if there are any questions that uh, you would like clarified um, or further expounding on something, a statement that was said. And uh, I'll allow you to express the question to me and I'll repeat it so that we are sure to get it uh, on the recording. So are there any questions uh, from this introductory uh, study this evening? Okay, well, uh, you can save the, if you do think of a question, you can bring it next time. So God willing, we'll meet next week. Uh, let's uh, close in prayer and please stand with me. Our Heavenly Father, our glorious Savior, blessed Holy Spirit, Thou art our one and only God. And we thank Thee and praise Thee this day, this evening, for the glorious revelation that we find in Thy Word. We thank Thee, our Lord, that, that Thou hast given to us Thy truth, which does set us free. We thank thee for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is, again, no way that we could possibly be saved without knowledge of Christ, and only Jesus is revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. And we pray, our Lord, that, that thou would Give to us an earnest hungering and thirsting for thy word to know thee. It is not simply a book that we desire to know, but it is ultimately thee that we desire to know, the living God. And we only can learn to, to understand and know thee as we grow in our understanding of that revelation of thyself that thou hast given unto us. And so our God, give to us submissive hearts, that we would not uh, seek to lord it over thee and by uh, bringing our own uh, interpretation and our own thoughts, but let us, Lord, be submissive and yielding to thee and thy word and thy truth and what uh, thy scripture does teach, not only in one place, but, Lord, in all places where that truth is revealed. Our Lord and our God, we do bless thee for many have suffered and died throughout the ages to preserve thy word, to pass it on to us and future generations. May we likewise cherish thy word and love it to such a degree that we would be willing to die for thee and to die for thy truth that is found in thy word. We thank thee, our Lord for thy great love for us in Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin, for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for everlasting life in Christ alone. And we ask that thou would dismiss us with thy peace now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You are dismissed.